three great prayers in the Bible, Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, and Daniel 9, are prayers of corporate repentance for me and my people. A week or so ago, I preached a message at Grace Evangelical Church in Congotown, Liberia, on Nehemiah chapter 9, which is a little bit different from the other two. It's not exactly me and my people, it's us and our people. So I encourage you to listen and enjoy this message on corporate repentance and individual repentance from Nehemiah chapter 9. Thank you for listening to Voices Along the Way. I'm Gene Brooks. So if you'll open your Bibles with me this morning, I want to go with you through the passage of Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, one of the most remarkable passages and the longest prayer that we find in the whole Bible. So we're going to look at it this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for opening to our spirits and our minds your word. Teach us, Lord. Help us learn, not just for our mind's sake, but for us to be able to live the truth that we learn. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 9 this morning, and we're going to, let me just set up our uh, message this way. A little building stands at a place called Friendfield Village on a large plantation in South Carolina called Hobcall Barony near Georgetown. And that area of South Carolina once produced half of the world's rice supply, of all the rice produced in the world. And the fields were worked by over a thousand African slaves. I was there with a team in November of 2001 to commemorate the visit uh, to that city, uh, that coastal city, of a replica of a ship called the Amistad, a Portuguese slave ship uh, that had captured a group of Mende people from the area of Sierra Leone and the border with Liberia. And they were on the ship headed to be sold as slaves in the Americas somewhere. But on the ship, the, the slaves were able to break free from their chains and they revolted. They killed the crew and threw them overboard. But then they had to figure out what to do. <laughs> How do you sail a ship when the only thing you've ever done is live in the bush? And so the, the ship drifted. And as it drifted, it caught the, uh, the flow of the oceans and it was found off the coast of the United States near Massachusetts and Connecticut. Their case to decide what would be done with them, whether they would be free or whether they would be slaves or whether they own, were owned by the Spanish or by the, or who had captured the ship at, off the coast of America or whether they were in U.S. waters and they were in a free state, were they free? Or did they belong to the Portuguese who had, who had kidnapped them from Africa? That whole case went before the U.S. Supreme Court. John Quincy Adams, who had been president earlier, was their attorney. And he argued their case. And he won freedom for these Mende people. 
and they and one they returned back to their homes in West Africa. Their story was made famous in the 1997 film Amistad. Maybe you've seen it. Our team was there to intercede concerning the defilement of the land there on this rice plantation and the mistreatment of Africans and African Americans as slaves in that place. So in this abandoned church building, we gathered to pray after inspecting a row of slave cabins that were still standing from 150, 200 years ago. What happened that day was phenomenal. But let me preface it by going over two scriptures. One of them is Genesis 4.10. In Genesis 4.10, God said, after Cain had killed Abel, he said to him, What have you done? Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. But then when we go to Hebrews 12, 24, we find that the writer of Hebrews says that the blood of Jesus cries out a better thing than the blood of Abel. Which, and in the Amplified it says, because the blood of Jesus cries out mercy. Mercy. And so, after we were there in in Georgetown on this plantation, what happened next was phenomenal. After we had some beginning prayer time, I noticed that the African Americans who were on our prayer team were immediately overcome with grief. They were not functioning well. The local pastor there, Pastor Threlkill, who was a white Methodist pastor, jumped up, ran to the pulpit, and he says, very simply, I have to repent for the way pastors in this area have preached a lie that slavery was a good thing for slaves. He just spit out his words, you know, on everyone with a great passion. And you could see he was very sincere, but then he just stood there and was silent. Everything was motionless. Finally, a lady from Maryland, an African black American from Maryland, Rosalind Roberts, she stood up and she went to him, standing there at the pulpit. And she began to, stood there for a moment, and then suddenly a piercing sound of a deep, sobbing wail came out of her. As she wept some great, deep, deep wound. Phil... The pastor was a little bit surprised. He didn't know what to do with this lady who was collapsing on him. And he was trying to hold her up. He held her and, until she could speak through the pain and the grief. And she really labored. She seemed like a woman who was in labor as she was trying to get out the words of forgiveness of him and other ministers. And that started it. We began to pray into the life then of, of African-American men across the United States, asking the Lord to move in them to, so that they could move into their callings as fathers and as husbands and as leaders. And after more prayer, we, we finished with a, a spiritual that really speaks to the passage that we have in front of us today. It went something like this. You better hold to his hand, hold on to 
to God's unchanging hand. You better hold to His hand. Hold on to God's unchanging hand. You better build your hopes on things eternal. You better hold to God's unchanging hand. And that's what we found in we find in Nehemiah 3. Now what we've seen so far is that God has carried Nehemiah through this book as he has led the people of Judea to build a wall in an amazing 52 days. Then to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. Then even more important, what Pastor Kellenberg preached about last week, to call Ezra to read the Word of God. And we saw the response of the people. The, the long-forgotten Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated for the first time in over 200 years. And now, we are one day after the end of that great celebration of remembering their history in the wilderness... And revival has begun to break out among the people in response to the reading of God's Word. So now in the midst of repentance, we find in chapter 9 the longest recorded prayer in the Bible. And we see similar prayers. Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9, and Ezra 9 are all prayers that are confessing the sins of me and my people. In Nehemiah, it's us and our people. And that, that prayer, this prayer will review Israel's history and how God responded to them at every turn. This prayer is said in repentance and in purity and in humility. Uh, and so Chuck Swindoll says that this is a prayer that goes four directions. It looks up in adoration. It looks back in thanksgiving. It looks around in the present. And then it looks forward to the future. And so we're going to look at this prayer, Nehemiah 9 today. Nehemiah wrote Nehemiah 9 to teach Israel that God calls us to repentance, praise, remembrance, and renewal. If you'll go to that next screen there, Dr. Kellenberg. Keep on going. Yeah, go past. I've already passed the outline. All right. Keep going. So... This is, our, this is our key truth today. Nehemiah wrote Nehemiah 9 to teach Israel that God calls us to repentance, praise, repentance, and renewal. And the key application I want you to see is that we want to see what God's Word says today about repentance, prayer, and renewal, and where is our place in it. So let's look at this passage today. The key verse are in the first two verses. On the 24th day... Of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and having dust on their heads. And those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the wickedness of their fathers. First of all, what we see today is that God calls us, the next screen, Dr. Kellenberg, is to repentance in humility. God calls us to repentance in humility. 
This is the first four verses. The next three go like this. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day and spent another fourth in confession and worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs were the Levites, Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Kenani, who called with loud voices to the Lord their God. And the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and praise the Lord your God who is from everlasting to everlasting. So the first thing from the first four verses today, God calls us to repentance and humility. Now the people had been fasting. They were declaring that their hunger for God was more pressing than their need to eat. They were renouncing the lusts of the flesh. Their loose-fitting garments of coarse goat's hair or sackcloth expressed a deep sense of mourning and grief and humiliation because of their sin. They were renouncing the lust of the eyes. And by throwing dust on their heads, similar to what you can see some places in Africa, they were symbolically identifying with death, showing that they had the feeling of feeling the very lowest. They were renouncing the pride of life. They were operating in repentance. And you see in, in, in verse 2 that they separated themselves and personally confessed their sin for several hours. It says a fourth of the day, which would, of a 12, uh, in Israel, in the Jews had a 12-hour day on the, on the light side of the day. And so that would be three hours of the day would have been spent in the Word of God and three hours would have been spent in repentance. Now I want, to, want you to notice two words in verse 2. The first word says that they confessed their sins. The NIV says, and the wickedness of their fathers. The, NIV, the uh, King James Version calls that the iniquities of their fathers. Now two words there, sins. That word means simply sins or a condition of being sinful. The second word is what I want to point out. The word wickedness or iniquities. That has the idea of sin which has been twisted and perverted. It's a word which means twisted. So over time, the effect of sin over time and with our generations is to twist us. It perverts us. It causes us not to be whole. It twists us and breaks us. That's what sin does over time. That's the picture of not just immediate sin, but also sin over time, generational sin. Look at verse 3. They read the Word of God for three hours. And then in verse 4 and 5, we have two lists of names. The Levites stood on the, on the steps and they led in prayer. And then they led, in verse 5, in they, it says they called on the Lord with loud voices. And then they encouraged everyone else to stand up. Why stand up? Because they've been on their faces confessing their sin. He says, stand up and let's, see, let's pray. Let's praise the Lord your God. 
And so these, these, group, these two groups of names, notice that each one of them began with a certain name, Yeshua. That is the Hebrew name for the Lord Jesus Christ. Each of them began with Yeshua. Now that word means salvation or he is saved or he will be saved. Depending on how the, the, it's, it's pointed. Now, if you take, now I'm, tell, I'm, I'm going back to my, my hypothesis that every word, if we believe in the inerrancy of scripture, that is that there are no errors in the scripture, then every word is important. So if every word is important, then he has placed it in a certain way that we should pay attention. And the original hearers or readers of this will be reading it in, or hearing it in Hebrew. And all names have a meaning. And be, just like in many African cultures, right? Here in Liberia, every name has a meaning. And so... If you take those name meanings as a person who is reading it in the original language will see the meaning in the name as it goes. This is what we read if we put them in order. If we venture a reading of these names. He is saved who is built by God the Ancient One. He is increased by the Lord. What was built the Lord has scorched and again built my possession. Now in verse 5, the list is a little bit different of names. And if we were to venture a reading there, it would say, it would mean salvation is of God the Ancient One. The same thing. The one who built Israel, whom the Lord regards, whom also the Lord has scorched, the majesty of the Lord is increased by the Lord in being freed by the Lord. And so this picture that we have is a skeletal outline of the story of Israel and where he is taking them. He's taking them from being built up by him as Israel. Then he scorched them. He punished them by sending them into exile. And then he has built up his treasured possession again to free them. And you see the end of this chapter, he'll say, we're still slaves. We're still slaves in our own land. But, he, but God's purpose is to free them. And what freedom is he talking about? The freedom that's going to come in Jesus Christ one day. Right? Now, we see this call to prayer in verses 5 and 6. They praise the name of God. Uh, a synonym of the radiant glory of the king. And they praise his exalted position over the mountains and his sovereignty over the matchless creation. Read it with me. Blessed be your glorious name and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens and all their starry host, the earth and all that is on it, the sea and all that is in them. You give life to everything and the multitudes of heaven worship you. And so he praises his unlimited power, his omnipotence, his faithfulness, his mercy, his love, his exalted position, his place as creator. In the preface of his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer 
says that there is a condition which has existed in the church for some years and is steadily growing worse. He said, I refer to the loss of the concept of God's majesty. The God that we must see is not a utilitarian God who does what we want Him to do. Who is, who is uh, this is the God that has so popular today whose chief claim to men's attention is his ability to bring them success or bring them wealth in their various undertakings and who for that reason is being cajoled and flattered by us, everyone who wants a favor from him. No, that's not the God we serve. The God we must learn to know is the one who is the majesty in the heavens, the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the only wise God, our Savior. That's who we worship. We worship a majestic God. And then, so we see here, first of all, that God calls us to repentance and humility. Verses 5 through 9, He calls us to adoration and praise. He continues on and says, begins in verse 7 and begins to talk about how um, God, he, he launches into the history, uh, a, a, an understanding of history through prayer of the people and the story of Israel from God's perspective. And, and that's the third thing that we see in this passage from verses 7 to 31. God calls us to remembrance with thanksgiving. God calls us to remembrance with thanksgiving. This pattern of, of prayer continues and it marks out important landmarks in Israel's history. I want you to look with me in verses uh, 7 to 17. He says, You are the Lord God who chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Gergesites. You have kept your promise because you are righteous, because you are faithful. And so he, he says to us that the Lord has provided grace in covenant to Abraham and God's faithfulness. Look with me in 9 to 12. You saw the suffering of our forefathers in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent miraculous signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of this, his land. For you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry land. But you hurled their pursuers into the depths like a stone into the mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. And so we see that the, he is rehearsing the history that God has given from verses 7 to 17 is from Abraham to the giving of the Torah. So we see that in 7 and 8 we see God, that he says God's covenant with Abraham and God's faithfulness. In verses 9 through 12 we see the redemption from Egypt in signs and wonders. Now in verses 13 to 15, we see God's faithfulness in giving of the Torah. Verses 13 to 15. You came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. 
You gave them regulations and laws that were just and right, and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands and decrees and laws for your servant Moses. In their hunger you gave them bread from heaven, and in their thirst you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go into the land and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. And so up to this point we see this, this powerful uh, giving of faithfulness and provision that God has given everything that was needed to these people. And then in verse 16, they begin to confess their sin. But they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and in their rebellion appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. Therefore you did not desert them. Even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Or when they committed awful blasphemies. So he says, Israel rebelled in the wilderness and God was still faithful. In verse 17, he provided pardon. Israel responded in verse 18 with ingratitude and, and provocation. Before in verses 16 and 17, God gave them all of those things from Abraham to the Torah. What was their response? Ingratitude and pride. From verses uh, 19... We see God provided manifold mercies. Because of your great compassion, you did not abandon them in the desert. By day and the pillar of cloud did not cease to guide them on their path, nor the pillar of fire by night to shine on the way they were to take. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths. You gave them water for their thirst. For 40 years you sustained them in the desert. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, nor did their feet become swollen. Incredible mercies God is pouring out. And what was Israel's response? It was rebellion. You see, and they went into the land. We see from verses 22 and 23 and 24 and 25, they captured fortified cities and fertile land. Verse 26, but they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They put your law behind their backs. They killed your prophets who had admonished them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So, verse 27, you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven you heard them, and in your great compassion you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. What we're talking about here from verses 26 to 29 are the 15 rebellions in the book of Judges. 15 of those rebellions. God provided then punishment. Israel would respond with humiliation and cry out. God would provide manifold mercies. Israel would respond by repeating their evil. God would provide punishment. Israel would respond with humiliation and cry out to God. God would provide mercies. And then Israel would respond by being unthankful and proud. And then we come to verse 30. 
For many years you were patient with them. By your spirit you admonished them through your prophets. Yet they paid no attention, so you handed them over to neighboring peoples. But in your great mercy you did not put an end to them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Even through the bloody disobedience of the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, ending with the Babylonian exile, we see this continuing cycle. God is patient. But Israel responds with stubbornness. And so God provides judgment. But even in His judgment, He is patient and holds back. So like a masterful African storyteller, this prayer shows us the history of the people and what it means and how to interpret it in light of God's faithfulness and mercy. It's living history. But they are claiming it now as their own story, as a new generation. This is our story. This is who we are. This is the story of our people in the good and the bad. God's faithfulness, our stubbornness, our sinfulness. In many of our African churches today, our worship has a lot of dance and it has a lot of rejoicing because we have a lot to dance and rejoice about. But it also, we need to remember the importance of acknowledging our sin, confessing our sin, repenting of our sin. We need to be aware of our failures. We need to allow ourselves to be in an attitude of mourning. We must get past the whole idea of honor and shame and focus on what the Bible says about us and our need to confess and repent of our sin. You see, brothers and sisters, when you're in need of renewal and ready for a new start, what do you do? You find a quiet place and you open your heart to God. You talk to Him about all your doubts, about all your sins, about all your issues that have brought the present crisis that you have in your life, that brought it on you. You remember God's great love for you and how He took care of you and when you did not have the sense to take care of yourself. Remember His great love and His mercy along the history of your path. And then be ready to reaffirm your own commitment to Him as your King and your Master. On that day back in South Carolina on that plantation at Hobcall Barony, at the old friend-filled village church building, abandoned church, no worship going on there, another prayer time happened besides the one I told you. It was prayer that was then led by an African-American lady named Margaret Bell from Maryland. She was confessing the way black women of differing skin tones would look down on each other depending on the tone of their skin. They would use derogatory terms for one another. Oh, you work in the house. Oh, no, you work in the field. And then all of our black women on our team joined hands at the altar and confessed and they forgave and they blessed one another. They were confessing the sin not only of me right now, but of my people and how we have treated one another. The process of remembrance prayer 
confessing the sins for me and my people. It's been called identificational repentance. I repent and I identify with the sins of me and my people. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9. It's confession to God for corporate sin that has been done among our people. It's not confessing the sins of the people who committed it long ago. No, that's their responsibility. They stand before God because of their sin. But it is stepping in. What it is is stepping into the priestly role of an intercessor where on behalf of the offending group that I'm associated with for the confession of my corporate sin of my people. Just as the Jews were suffering the consequence of the sins of their fathers in the land with a destroyed land, so we carry the burdens and the consequences of the sin that has occurred among our own people. And we're called to repentance, not just as individuals, but we're called as peoples and of nations of which we are a part. Then the fourth thing that God calls us to here is He calls us to renewal of covenant. And that's verses 32 to 38. We shift now from focusing on the sin now to looking to God for help. Verse 32. Now therefore our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps His covenant of love, do not let this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come upon us, upon our kings and our leaders, upon our priests and our prophets, upon our fathers and our people, from the days of the kings of Assyria until today. In all that has happened to us, you have been just. You have acted faithfully while we did wrong. Our kings, our leaders, our priests, and our fathers did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the warnings you gave them, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them. They did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and the other things it produces. And because of our sin, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. So freely admitting their sin and that their sin brought the hardship that they found themselves in. Now in the present, they ask the Lord to enter into their pain. And in the living in their own land under the oppression of another nation. Even though Israel had disobeyed, God had always kept His promises. They could not get away from being God's people. They were eternally secure as being God's people. He punished them as He warned them He would in His covenant, but He never abandoned them. And we see in verse 38, we see a commitment of the future. People ask, for a renewal of their relationship and a covenant with God. The Israelites are looking now to their future and they're looking to God. And they remember in prayer these terrible consequences of their disobedience. And they want this generational cycle to end. They want a change in their future. Would that 
Liberians would rise up and demand a change in their future. That the generational cycle would stop. That God would turn this nation to himself. And it would once again be the most prosperous nation in West Africa. That it would once again be a nation that was blessed by God. One of the ironies of our prayer journey in 2001 to the Georgetown area of South Carolina, where thousands of people of West African descent worked in the rice fields as slaves, is that the first slave capture in North America probably happened in that same town. According to ship logs, a Spanish galleon dropped anchor in a place that matches the geography of this area in 1519. The Spaniards went ashore, invited several dozen Indians, American Indians, Native Americans, aboard ship for a party, got them drunk, then they weighed anchor and they sailed to Hispaniola, which is today Haiti and the Dem Democratic and, and the uh, Dominican Republic. And there they sold those Indians as slaves. This was the first slave taking in North America. And so here we are in Georgetown, gathered in a place to pray because a famous replica of a slave ship, Amistad, was visiting on a plantation where there were over a thousand slaves working at one time, facing a bay where the first slave taking in all of North America took place. God had orchestrated that and placed us there to intercede over the defilements of the land, levels of defilement, over generations. 1519, first slave taking in North America, Hobcall Barony, over a thousand African slaves. And then we see the Amistad visiting in 2001 to recall the tragedy of African slavery in the world. All those things work together to bring us to that place to pray over the defilements of the land. Jesus told his disciples they would experience suffering, but he would always be with them. And here's the hope, guys. Here's the hope. No matter how much we've strayed from God, no matter how much we have suffered the consequences of our own sin, if we are in Christ, God never removes His love He has for us. If you're a believer and you've lost a close relationship with Him through sin, you need to just admit your sin to Him. Admit to Him your doubts. And God will be faithful to restore you. Perhaps, though, you realize today that you are not a believer in Jesus. You have never even the first time admitted that you have offended Him in your behavior and your thoughts and in your words? What do you do? Is there any hope for you? My friend, there's hope for you. Confess your sin to Him. Accept God's forgiveness through Jesus Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And then submit yourself to Him as your Lord. Give Him control of your life and accept the free gift of eternal life, of living forever that He gives you, that you cannot earn it. You can only receive it so that you will not be punished for your own sins. You 
Accept the punishment that Jesus paid for your sin when He died on the cross. Will you do that now? Let me lead you in prayer. Pray with me. Lord, I admit that I am a sinner. I have offended you. And I ask you to forgive me. Lord, save me from my sins. And Lord, I want to receive your free gift of eternal life. And I want to submit my life to you. I turn control of my life over to you. And I thank you for the free gift of eternal life. And I ask that you would lead me now and guide me. Help me learn how to talk with you and how to read your Bible. In your name, Lord, I pray. Amen. If you pray that prayer, for the first time, something happened. If you prayed it for the hundredth time and you didn't mean it, it doesn't mean anything. But if you prayed it for the first time and in your heart you know something in your heart was true, it happened. Then you have crossed from death to life. You have crossed from a destination of hell to a destination of eternal life in heaven with Christ forever. And so if you did that today, I want you to speak with me privately and let me know that. I would like to know that and give you some next steps in these days. May the Lord bless the reading and teaching and preaching of His Word. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to email me at brooksgene at outlook.com B-R-O-O-K-S-G-E-N-E at Outlook.com and let me know so that I can help you with next steps and perhaps be able to help you find a Christian fellowship where you live. Nehemiah 9 is a powerful message of repentance and I hope you enjoyed this message. This podcast can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Breaker, and other platforms. Thank you for listening to Voices Along the Way. I'm Gene Brooks.